Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Yes, the great John McEnroe is the focus for our second instalment of Roland Garros Relived after the joys of Yannick Noah yesterday. Poor old John. He did not have the sort of day that Yannick Noah had 12 months earlier. And we've just watched the match he played in 1984 against Ivan Lendl. Five sets, nearly four hours. Catherine, Matt and myself. And it was... Something pretty special. Catherine, how are you feeling having witnessed what you've just witnessed? I'm still worried about John McEnroe. <laughs> is is he okay? Yeah. Um Yeah, and well, you know, we'll go into the the aftershocks of that match, but you know, I think the answer is he's never been as okay as he would have been if he had won that match. He's never been quite okay again. That's how um seismic that defeat was for him and the victory was for Lendl. Yeah, yeah, it was it was quite a moment. Matt, uh, you have just seen your first ever full John McEnroe match, is that correct? Uh, second. I've seen the 1980 Wimbledon final in full before, but this was the first other than that. And yeah, I mean, I feel like I've I've discovered like a new album that I never knew about from my favourite artist. That's kind of what it feels like when you go back and watch these matches. It's like all this material that I kind of knew existed, but I'd never I'd never watched. And yeah, I mean, it's just one of the best matches I've ever seen. Um, and I felt like I had a lot to say about it. And then the then the volley on Match Point has left me a bit speechless. I still haven't quite got over that, that, that McEnroe botched on Match Point. I'm sure we'll get into it. But yeah, just... Just I'm I'm on a bit of a high, really. I feel like we've just come off watching a, an actual Grand Slam final that's just happened minutes ago. Well, yeah. I mean, normally we would be doing our second daily edition of the Tennis Podcast live from a Grand Slam, reacting to a day's play. And we're going to be reacting to a day's play, effectively, a Grand Slam final, because that's what we've just witnessed. And it really has hit us. We've, <laughs> we're, we're, we're spent a little, but we're going to enjoy reliving it with you here on the tennis podcast we've also spoken to mary carillo catherine had uh, a cracking chat with her a couple of days ago in which she gave some insight into john McEnroe and the effect that that match had on him the sort of impact and the sort of impressions that, that we wouldn't be able to give ourselves and mary knew him from way back and uh, and we'll get onto that a little bit later uh, she'll give us the full story but just to give you an idea of what the world was like in 1984 
The first Apple Mac went on sale. English pound notes were taken out of circulation. Have you ever seen an English pound note, either of you? No. <laughs> I have. They used to be green, green and white. Uh, there we are. Uh, Virgin Atlantic made its inaugural flight. The AIDS virus was identified by a French immunologist. Those are the things that happened in 1984, of note. What a cheery list. <laughs> I can only give you what happened. I can't just dress it up. Is there going to be a virus-related fact for every year? Well, Just that's to, a, to link it to present day. Bit of a test, isn't it? If I, I'm not sure I can pull that off. but uh, And hopefully I can't because we don't want them. It's not going to be much of a list when uh, people come back, you know, in 30 years' time and looking back on matches from 2020, is it? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> what happened? Lockdown <laughs> happened is what happened. Um, yeah, so what about in the tennis world? John McEnroe on the men's side was the overwhelming world number one. Martina Navratilova was the best player in the world on the women's side. And McEnroe was midway through one of the greatest seasons we have ever seen. He would win 82 matches and lose just three. He was on a run of 42 consecutive wins uh, when he came into this French Open final. And he went 11 wins and one defeat against the second and third ranked players in the world that year. So that's how, how good he was. And Matt, I mean, that run of 42 consecutive match wins in a row, that's a, a lot of tournaments. That was, that's like Djokovic did in 2011. Absolutely. And I think the only bit to add is what made him a favourite for this French Open final against Lendl was that he was winning on clay for kind of the first, you know, he was having really good results on clay for some of the first time in his career. And he was dominating Ivan Lendl. Uh, so part of the matches that made up those 42, he won titles against uh, in Philadelphia, beating Lendl in the final, in Brussels, beating Lendl in the final, in Forest Hills on clay, beating Lendl in the final, and then Dusseldorf on clay, beating Lendl in the final. So he, he had the absolute measure of him going into this match. And the, the rivalry between, between them was, was fascinating to watch because when you look at it now – it was marginally in the favour of Lendl throughout the whole career that he had the most wins. But And when they started, McEnroe won the first two. Lendl then won their next seven matches. And they talk in the commentary of this match about how Lendl had got his number. And then McEnroe figured it out, turned it around, won seven out of their next eight and came into this particular match with a 10-8 advantage. So he'd won seven of the previous eight meetings between the two. The other... Uh, context to, to give is that Ivan Lendl had yet to win a Grand Slam title. He would go on to win eight, one more than McEnroe would end up with in his career. But at that time, he was coming up short. He was really struggling in the big matches. And here he was up against the world number one, a guy who'd got his measure. And really, there was no feeling from the broadcast that we saw of NBC, Catherine, that that was likely to change anytime soon. Oh, I mean, first of all, it was a real pleasure to watch the the NBC broadcast of that match. I was so pleased to to find that on on YouTube. Um, but yeah, the the build up to 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 the match in the cover the NBC coverage was treating it like a coronation, like a foregone conclusion. It was Tony Trabitz in the crowd. He was the last American to to win Roland Garros. 
he's here in the crowd because he's he's going to be handing over that mantle today to to John McEnroe because John McEnroe doesn't lose tennis matches and Ivan Lendl doesn't win Grand Slam finals. End of story. That's what it felt like, and and that's what it felt like even more so at two sets to to love up um, for John McEnroe because because those that it was it was exhibition tennis from McEnroe for those wasn't it? it took him apart absolutely and it was it was it was potentially too easy potentially because you know he he well i mean there's the incident with the nbc cameraman um you, you've got uh, john McEnroe senior in the crowd um john's very characterful father wearing an NBC sports baseball cap, which I imagine wasn't in the McEnroe family collection probably after that day um, because it was an NBC cameraman with whom McEnroe took issue at the start of the third set. And apparently, and he recalls this um, in his second autobiography, McEnroe, the, he says the reason he he lost it with that NBC cameraman was because he heard the producer down that cameraman's headphones. He claims he heard that producer say, let me find the exact quote, when the match is over, we'll focus on John and then stick with him through the trophy ceremony. He's got this, so make sure he's in the shot. Oh, dear. That, that is what John McEnroe in his um, second autobiography, but seriously, claims that that he heard that that producer say, and that combined with um, his uh, friend um, leaving the match halfway through, leaving the match after after two sets. His friend Ahmad Rashad, uh, he said he got up to leave and shouted, "You've got this, Mac. I'll see you back at the hotel." <laughs> <laughs> Champagne I mean, just, on ice. Just and, on on the subject of. Um, <laughs> things going on behind the scenes in preparation for the for the title win and the trophy handing over we've been backstage working behind the scenes at tournaments in the past and i know what that's like you get to what four three in the set in the second or the third set when you see the end could be nigh and you get everybody ready you get the trophy just behind the doors on the entrance to the court and you you hope that you don't catch the eye of one of the players because you don't want them to think they think the match is about to end. And I've I've seen that in the past. I remember Tim Henman once complaining that he saw a TV crew gathering at the end of a court, ready for the end of a match, and and it put him off. Um, I've seen that sort of thing happen many times. But I mean, and that's what it felt like when you. McEnroe got himself to six three five one at one stage, and it was. He was toying with Lendl. Yeah, it was the most confident t- tennis I've, I've ever seen, really. I mean, he it, it was like he he wasn't even aware there was someone else down the other end of the court. He wasn't thinking about what Lendl was going to do or worrying about Lendl was going what Lendl was going to do. It was here's my game. It is this good, and I, I'm just going to execute it. I don't give two hoots what you're playing at down the other end of the court. It was so supremely, infectiously confident. Um, but there were there were there were a couple of moments of what looks in hindsight like foreshadowing in both games where he served out the opening sets. 
he served double faults. And they were the only double faults that he had hit in those opening two sets. There was a really, really wobbly forehand, or more than wobbly, it was a it was a botched forehand, to use uh, Matt's word, in the uh, when he was serving out the opening set. Now he did he did manage to serve out those sets, but they were just tiny tells in retrospect of of the pressure and potentially the the mental gymnastics that were going on in in John McEnroe's mind throughout even the plain sailing parts of that match. So you can only imagine what was going on during the more turbulent periods. I do feel a bit silly, though, for being surprised by how good McEnroe was. Like, I've always known McEnroe was great. He's he's multiple Grand Slam champion. And yet I found myself surprised at how good his tennis was. I I think often the narrative around McEnroe can get a bit reduced you know see people can talk about him uh, uh, they either talk about his temper or they talk about him being a genius but the actual intricacies of his play his understanding of the court his his serve was bigger than i than i thought it was um his understanding of angles the texture to his game the flow he had the way he would sort of smother opponents in a way that kind of federer does by just letting his game just come out it was incredible to watch and I'm not sure I'd ever fully appreciated that before this. And all the way through this match when we were sharing notes on it and we were even asking Mary's thoughts on it because we just could not believe he's going to lose this match. You're watching it and it's 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 6-3-5-1 and then he, and then he wins that set 6-2. So he's two sets to love up and that he has so many chances including getting to... Two games all in the second, having love 40 on the Lendl's second serve and not breaking serve in that particular game. Um, Lendl then went 4-2 up, McEnroe breaks back, but all the time McEnroe's the better player. That's how it feels. And he just doesn't convert the, the key chances. And then really noticeable the way his first serve just just deserted him and and that becomes a monologue from McEnroe with the crowd doesn't it I mean or more to the point we as viewers hear McEnroe losing his temper but he's not losing the temper with the line umpire he's 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 having a go at himself he calls himself a stupid moronic jerk um he's he he misses a backhand by an inch at four games all and juice and he goes god damn you and this this sort of thing just happens regularly throughout the match the the trajectory of lendl throughout the match is really interesting as well because it's very responsive to to mcenroe it's a really competitive match in the very early stages but Lendl's in it he looks like he's playing well and then and then it's clear that McEnroe is just playing so well and so confidently that there's this kind of deflation in Lendl you can almost see him thinking wow well it kind of doesn't matter how well I play because this guy is um, just on another planet Um, and then second set Lendl is as uh, as Bud Collins described um, in the commentary, he said, the guy's naked out there without his forehand. Just such a great description. He His forehand just was completely off the boil and he did look naked. He looked powerless and lost in the face of this man playing just hypnotic tennis. 
And then McEnroe gives him a sliver of hope. The guy looks lost and naked. How many times can I say naked in this <laughs> in this podcast? Uh, and and McEnroe hands him hope on a platter. He shows him that even though he's playing brilliant tennis, even though Lendl's forehand has deserted him, he doubts himself. And you can see Lendl grow over the you course of see, that third you, set. Yeah, you see Lendl become what he ended up becoming as a champion this relentless figure who had this huge forehand. We'd notice how many great cross-court passing shot forehands he would hit. He hit a slight sort of early version Nadal banana forehand down the line that he'd, he got on the run. That was a beautiful shot. He got a good backhand passing shot, uh, cross-court particularly. But you started to see... Uh, the, that was that felt like the making of him. I heard of an interview with him recently when he when he refuted that as being a, a kind of moment that defined his whole career. He was trying to say, well, look, let's let's not forget. I was I was on the brink a lot. I was, and I just think it, I would have got there eventually anyway. But maybe it might not have happened like that. Maybe the scar tissue would have built as we've seen with certain players. And and I mean, Matt, he was. He was a dominant player. We, I think, I don't really think I realised how dominant he was everywhere else, other than the slams at that time. Yeah, he'd won. He'd already won thirty nine titles on the tour by this by this point, but obviously none of those at the slams, which I hadn't appreciated either. I kind of thought that maybe he'd got to a few slam finals, but almost maybe wasn't ready to win them. But he absolutely probably should have won one of those first four. He was a good enough player to. Um, I just think what's interesting about this match as well is it's held up as a kind of quintessential choke, if you like. You know, it's kind of the match that people will point to as McEnroe choking. So therefore, I expected his whole game to disintegrate. And yet, as you go further into the match, he's still playing this gorgeous tennis and he looks like the better player throughout the whole match it's just what he doesn't do is take his opportunities and as you said those and he, and he lets himself get distracted by things the he lets himself get distracted by the crowd slightly turning against him by the cameraman and as you said that that was just hope for Lendl and that that was a route back into the match for Lendl he didn't he didn't close McEnroe and that's what's got to hurt him because he was such a good front runner in his career I, th I had a quick look and it I think he only lost one other match from two sets up in his whole career you know he didn't lose these matches he was a front runner who allowed his talent to take over matches when he was in control and on this one he, he lets it get away even though his tennis doesn't disappear he just doesn't take his chances and that is just well it does hurt we know how much it hurts I think that's shown by how all the way through we're ex I'm uh, we're even in sets four and five we're thinking he's he's gonna he's not he's gonna win this isn't he I mean even though I know the result I'm still I don't I'm thinking how does he lose it from here he's he had the two break points even in the fifth set didn't he I think at about four games all and those two final sets Lendl won seven five seven five that gives you an idea of just how stressful it was out there i mean and if if you're watching it as we've just done what is it 36 years on 
and it's still stressful to watch when you even know the result, that tells you just what it must have been like at the time. It, it was a, it was an absolutely fantastic match. I, I I I came out of it uplifted, but feeling just devastated from McEnroe. And we'll 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 talk about what that meant to him and and what we know of that uh, after we've heard from from Mary as well but but I think we should hear from from Mary now because nobody knows John McEnroe really any better within tennis circles than than she does she she won a mixed doubles title with him in 1977 and she knows what it meant to John McEnroe I mean John should have won obviously against Lendl in that incredible match and, and interestingly, Catherine, I, I, I cover the French Open with John McEnroe every year on NBC. And as much as he likes Paris and loves the event, he, he admits to a certain melancholia as he wanders through the grounds. He knows that that was his chance. And so few American men had won that title. You know, it had been a lot like Tony Traber did it, you know, back in the day. But and obviously Michael Chang won it at 17. But John had his look. And he choked, and he knows he did. And he wasn't a choker by nature. Um, so that one haunts him. John won the junior, the 1977, the first year he played at Roland Garros, he won the junior title. I mean, John was good on everything. John would, would, be, John would have been great playing lunar tennis, you know, uh, if such a thing existed. Um, he did. And he, look, the guy knew his game was going to work on anything, and he, again, that was the start of Lendl. And that was the start. John always says, my, my best rivalry, my greatest rivalry was with Borg. That's not really true. That's his favorite rivalry. <laughs> it's not his greatest. I mean, he had a lot, he had a lot more matches with a lot more people. Um, but Lendl beating him changed both of their careers. I really feel that way. What are your memories of, of that final in 84 at the time? Uh, I mean, I, I, of course I thought he was going to win. I, there was no doubt in my mind. Lendl had played in major finals and lost all of them. And John was really playing well. His, his serve was taking the clay and kicking it out wide. And he, he, everything that he was doing, he was doing well. And then, you know, I think anybody who's watched that match could see that he, it, it, it started as anger. You know, he, there was a cameraman who I knew <laughs> uh, that he got aggravated at. And then he just sort of, he lost his temper and then he truly lost his way. And once Yvonne knew that he had gotten some traction in that match, he he was just ready to take it over. Lendl was a terrific clay court player because he had pretty long take backs. He had pretty big uh, swings and the clay gave him time to hit them. John was doing his whole, you know, Serve and volley, crash and dash, bunt and and come in and you know John John knew how to play clay as well, but it was an absolute uh, that if John could have one match back against that particular opponent as well, you know what I mean? Then he would he would try he would. It's very rare that John's anger got in the way of his success, but on that occasion, John just could not could not recover from himself and Lendl took the advantage. When you say that much, that result, the way it panned out changed both their careers. What's the, what's the sliding doors situation for both for, for, for McEnroe, if he had, let's say, you know, he'd, he'd won in three straight sets. It had, it had 
you know, proceeded as it had done the first two. What's the alternate universe? I think, I mean, John carried that loss around for months. Um, and I think for Lendl, obviously, he started winning majors after that. So that that's the easy explanation for, for how that changed his career. Um, people knew that he wasn't a choker anymore. But I also think John... Oh, I'll tell you this conversation that John had that night with Patrick. They went out with his younger brother. They went out to have a bunch of beers <laughs> after that match. And Patrick said to John, what a, a, the younger brother is going to try to say to an older brother, a champion. Patrick said, don't worry, there'll be, there'll be more chances. Which sounds like a pretty safe, sensitive thing to say. And John looked at Patrick and said, no, there won't. That was my chance. Whoa, that was my chance. Like John knew that of all of the majors, that was always going to be the hardest one for him to win. Always. I mean, the, the majors he won, four U.S. Opens, three Wimbledons, they were on faster surfaces. They, they rewarded his kind of play. How about that? So, of course, he went on and won more, more majors, but he never got close to winning in Paris again. That melancholia that you described that he experiences mm. in Paris at Roland Garros, has that, has that eased over the years? It, it has because, look, John has sort of become this great avuncular character. You know, you, you know what he's like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's, he's, like a, he's a very different guy from the man who was trying to win majors back in the day. Um, but, no, he will allow, he will admit in Paris, and I'm telling you, Catherine, I'll bet it's happened just about every single year that we've been there. I mean, I've covered Paris for decades now, where he will say, I still have a problem with this place. Isn't that something? Would he, would he ever use the C word, choke? Yeah, I think he will now. Yes, yes, he will. He Reluctantly. <laughs> <laughs> he, he sort of chokes when he says it. <laughs> No, no. He, look, he knows. That's what. That's why I think that conversation with Patrick uh, is so powerful, right? Mm. Yeah. Goodness me. Wow. And the thing is, it, it, you know, if you watch John play a lot in so many of his matches, he'd he'd flub a volley. You know, he'd 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 hit a bad shot, and he would he would grab his own throat. And that, to me, was such a great release valve for him. He would grab it like he would admit to everybody in that stadium and watching on TV that he had just choked that shot. I, yeah, have you seen him do that? You've seen him, I'm sure, if you go through mm. his old videos. He'll actually grab it. But then he recovers from it. You know, then the next, the next five shots he plays are gorgeous. But John was the first. And like he dismissed it. He got it out of his system by grabbing his own throat. But he could not do that against Yvonne Lendl in Paris. Well, it really sums it up, doesn't it? To hear Mary talk about John McEnroe in those terms and, and particularly that, those beers that he went out for with Patrick McEnroe, the, the feeling that on one hand, logic should tell you that this is the first of many chances and that this guy is absolutely in his prime. He's just won 42 matches in a row. He's finally lost one. And... Look at what he went on to do. He then went to Wimbledon and he absolutely destroyed the field. He he beat Jimmy Connors in a match that I that I watched 
live at the age of just 10 years old. And even at that age, I knew that I'm watching just a genius at work and somebody who's totally, totally dominant in the sport. He lost three matches for the entire year, of which that Lendl match was one of them. He won the US Open later that uh, summer as well. But then... It all disappeared, really. I mean, he re- what was it? He he reached one further Grand Slam final in his whole career. That was in 1985, and it never happened for him again. I mean, he had moments. He had special moments that I'll always remember, particularly 92, reaching the Wimbledon semifinals and, and one or two others like that. But that was it in terms of being the dominant force. But I, I'm, I'm always fascinated as well to, to try to work out how – bigger deal this was for him i mean mary uses the word haunting which which i find really makes me shudder just to think about it but i wonder i wonder whether although he 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 had good results for the rest of his career whether whether this can kept coming back to him i mean in his in his own autobiography to give you an idea of of just how hard this hit him this is what john mcenroe wrote it was the worst loss of my life a devastating defeat. Sometimes it still keeps me up nights. It's even tough for me now to do the commentary at the French. I'll often have one or two days when I literally feel sick to my stomach just at being there and thinking about that match, thinking of what I threw away and how different my life would have been if I'd won. I was at the top of my game that spring and my game plan was this, don't change a thing, serve, come in. I knew my volley was the best in the business. I knew I couldn't lose. Peter Fleming, that's his doubles partner, of course, was planning a victory party even before the match began. The day of the match, I saw a caricature in a French newspaper. In the picture, I was on one side of the net, pointing a gun at Lendl, who stood in the corner on the other side, shivering, sweat pouring off him. I loved that picture. The French fans evidently felt the same way. When I was introduced on centre court at Stade Roland Garros, I got the greatest hand I'd ever received at the start of a match. A huge roar. And by the end of the match, in my own inimitable way, I had somehow managed to get the entire crowd against me once again. Oh, it's visceral, isn't it? He was he, had, oh, he left dear. the court that day booed off by the French fans. The, the, the trophy ceremony, as yeah. they held it back then, was this incredibly raw thing that seemed to take place in one of the stands completely chaotic and disorganized um no podium they hand Lendl the trophy while McEnroe's just stood there looking like a a child that's had his ice cream taken away um and then they hand McEnroe this plate which he looks like he wants to throw in the bloke's face (laughs) it's not a plate it's a tray isn't it um and then they hand um, lend all this extremely amateur looking microphone that does not look like it's going to be able to project anything to a crowd of 18,000. Um, Lendl, uh, gives a one liner speech which, uh, doesn't reference his team, any thank yous, does not reference John McEnroe, just says, I'm really happy that I won. I'll be back next year. And then he disappears and he goes, apparently, <laughs> yeah. Collins and then, says he's and then McEnroe is apparently supposed to speak, but he just marches off. He marches down the steps and into the locker room, met with a cacophony of, of booze 
Um, and and then on the NBC broadcast, there is about eight minutes of Bud Collins valiantly trying to hold up a live report, clearly with someone in his ear saying, "Just just pad it out for a bit more, Bud. We we're, we're trying to locate the players." Uh, so Bud Collins gives sort of a potted summary of what he's just seen <laughs> the tennis match that everyone's just watched and says oh I'm hearing reports that Ivan Lendl is vomiting in the locker room <laughs> uh, no sightings of John McEnroe for for some time um, and he does eventually catch up with Lendl and does a quite extraordinary interview with him where Lendl is um, sat in a corridor i think so, i mean it looks it looks like a hostage video he sat in a corridor um uh, it, looking completely spent there's this very shaky blurry camera with incredibly poor lighting bud collins is sort of bending down and obscuring most of lendl's face from the shot um and his first question to him mean, it was a great interview his first question to him was Ivan I can never ask you again about how you always lose Grand Slam finals <laughs> <laughs> and then he asks him later on did you used to quit <laughs> matches that's yeah it was amazing can I say though how how much I enjoyed the commentary of Bud Collins? He was alongside Dick Emberg, and and I loved some of his references. I mean, this is a guy he played the sport, but not at a professional level. He was a journalist for the Boston Globe for for decades. Some and he's somebody I came across in in my career. I mean, he he died three or four years ago, but I, I knew him for about ten years, and he was always the loveliest person to encounter in the press room really welcoming to to young and new people in in the room you know if you if if either one of you had, had, had come across him he'd have he'd have given you a great welcome you know and made you feel part of it which was which was such a lovely quality of his but also as as a commentator some of the lines he came up with just i mean had me in hysterics for a start um but i also thought he was really well he really read the game well. He read what was happening. He managed to communicate what was happening in a way that I think could rel- any any sort of casual tennis sports observer or somebody who just is interested in John McEnroe could have switched on and thought, "Yeah, I, I get what's going on here." You know, I'm not just being lectured. Or he used the line mid commentary that, of course, McEnroe won his first ever Grand Slam title here at Roland Garros when Mary Carrillo carried him to mixed doubles glory in 1977, which is an all-time great commentary line. Mary tells it slightly differently, but we don't know who to believe. We'll have to see the footage. Uh, I also enjoyed his his reference to the slice serve out wide. He, He called it the can opener, which I thought was a great way of putting it. Uh, And I also enjoyed it how there's a a big tradition in America, I think, for when NBC would cover the French Open and Wimbledon, that it was breakfast at Wimbledon and it was always shown at that sort of time of the day and and he referenced how his his uncle Studley was uh, enjoying a croissant float which was a big bowl with a croissant in it and champagne all around it and the challenge was to see whether he could finish uh, the croissant or the champagne first just made it fun I might experiment (laughs) with one of those over the next French Open fortnight you know be rude not (laughs) 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. <laughs> Can I just pick up on something that you asked Mary, Catherine, about what would be the sliding doors situation if that match had gone the other way? Because I thought McEnroe wrote something interesting in his autobiography as well, saying that a French title would have given me that final complete thing I don't now have, which is a, le- which is a legitimate claim as possibly the greatest male player of all time. So he was he was kind of seeing the real big picture there, but not getting the French kind of was really a it, was really a black mark against his career you know he was he was recognizing the fact that you have to win on all surfaces that that book came out in 2002 so just as just as Sampras was retiring and you know he would have had probably fewer slams than Sampras but he would have had the French if he it, if he'd got this so it's interesting how he framed it that way as well in, in terms of his, his his place in tennis history was affected by this this one match as well I do find it amazing to think of a a match lost, albeit an important match, by a then five-time Grand Slam champion who went on to win two more Grand Slams that year, how that lost match can still be described and thought of by the man himself and by and by Mary and people that knew him as a career-defining match, a career-defining loss you know I, I understand how it was career defining for for Lendl he had lost four grand slams at that point yes he now says it was only a matter of time but that wouldn't necessarily have been the case I mean it was probably the law of diminishing returns at that point where whereas sort of up until the four grand slam final losses you're thinking with each one it seems all the more likely in the future but 
but then conversely you've got as you say the the baggage and the scar tissue building up so i understand the sliding doors thing for lendl but to think of to think of that match in the career circumstances of McEnroe at the time being career defining is is amazing to me and i always go back to your line about not wanting Federer to win necessarily the 2009 Wimbledon final he doesn't need it well if either player needed it on paper in this final it's Lendl because he he hasn't got any slams but actually you you really get the sense that McEnroe needed this as well during this final you kind of get the sense that both needed it which is perhaps what makes it so so tantalizing as a match Um, and that and that conversation that you had with with Mary and she's relaying the discussion that John had with Patrick about how John sensed that that was his time and he wouldn't have another moment. This this whole match and that conversation has actually put me in mind of last year's men's Wimbledon final with Federer and Djokovic. So much of what we've talked about in terms of McEnroe being the better player and not winning was was also true with Federer in terms of McEnroe knew that was his last, you know, that that was his chance. And it, you kind of felt like Federer knew that that Wimbledon was his chance last year. And I think I think there are some parallels there. And I think when, when people go back and watch the Wimbledon final, they will be having similar conversations to what we're having. Difference in careers and all that kind of thing. Differences, though. I, I, I mean, Federer will, be over, Federer will be okay with it. That's the difference. And McEnroe says in, in his autobiography, which he wrote in 2002, 18 years on from that match... He said he'd never watched it back. He just couldn't couldn't watch it back. And I, I just wonder whether McEnroe thinks more now about that loss than he does about his great happy moments. I, I also think it, what comes across from, from both autobiographies, the segments on that 84 Wimbledon final, is that he's trying so hard to, ad, to admit that he choked. You know, I, I asked Mary... Would he use the C word? And she said, "Yes, I, I think he would now." But he he doesn't in in either autobiography. Um, but <laughs> he he really is trying to 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 say it, it was entirely my fault. However, the the Macanroness does does show through he, he you know in in the uh in the segment where he's talking about this is in his set of, second autobiography when he's talking about his um his footballer friend uh Ahmad Rashad that, that left halfway through saying you've got this Mac I'll see you back at the hotel um he says shit the last thing I needed was a jinx it's an unwritten rule in sports that friends and family don't leave until the match is over and then he says not that I'm blaming Ahmad for the loss, but <laughs> <laughs> which is my favourite sentence ever. I'm not blaming him, but I am sort of <laughs> blaming him a bit. <laughs> and uh, actually, you you do see this come out if you talk to him about it. if this comes up in conversation. This match, I, I, I've always got on pretty well with McEnroe professionally when I've had to deal with him on the Champions Tour we always got on well um and I always found that he he was helpful you know he might make it really hard work but actually he would he would deliver in the end you know if you'd agreed something he would deliver he would turn up just about on time and when he got there he would deliver but I do remember I didn't appreciate how much this loss hurt him 
on one time I interviewed him when Lendl was returning and coming on the Champions Tour and and I said what's Lendl like and he said oh you know his his jokes are still as bad as ever and we both laughed and then I said what jokes like 1984 French Open (laughs) you know thinking that that might be something that Lendl might raise in conversation backstage and McEnroe sort of styled it out but that irritated him that I'd brought it up and when we finished the interview, he told he made, he told me I, I didn't like that, you know, and um and we were fu- we were okay, we we sorted it out. I didn't mean to kind of upset him, but that cut that's too close to the bone for him. Um, and I can I can understand it. I mean, it hurts him. I think it just shows that it still hurts. This is why you need tennis relive, David, to <laughs> to know the context of these matches. <laughs> yeah, well, you're right. I mean, I feel like I, I'm personally learning so much about element, uh, periods in history, tennis history, which I knew something of, or I might have had a memory from a, being a kid or have read something about or heard a story. But, I mean, this really does take you back, and uh, I'm loving every minute of it. One last sliding doors thing that I wonder about this match is it's so it's so on character for, or it feels so on character based on what we know of McEnroe for him to be haunted by this match somehow to, for, for him to potentially fixate on this loss more than any of the, the, the wins. Cause he's such a complex character, a perfectionist. I mean, his, his tennis that we just watched was near perfection in that match. If he had won this match, would he have found some other match to be keeping him up at night still. It's kind of chicken and egg. Does he have this kind of character because of that? Does he have these haunted feelings because of that 1984 French Open final? Or does that match haunt him because of the kind of character that that he is? I do think he has the capacity to self-destruct. And I think that you see that with the the meltdowns with, with the umpire. I mean, it was late. It was at the end of that year that he he ended up having his one of his most famous meltdowns in Stockholm um where he where he said the question jerk uh, to to the umpire and he smashed all of his belongings into smithereens on the on the side of the court and he got fined $7,500 and he was suspended for 3 weeks at the end of the year um and you know and he ended up injuring himself during training while he was suspended and he ended up missing the Australian Open. So I I, I mean he he could he could sometimes start an argument pretty much in an empty room if he was if it set him off. But I can't imagine that if he'd have got that title there would have been a big enough gap in his r- resume, really. But I but I can't imagine him just being completely serene and content with his career and they're not being something that keeps him up at night. Maybe he needed this. <laughs> I don't know. I just can't imagine that scenario where where McEnroe is just, you know, content. As you describe as you describe with with Federer, the the comparison that match ends with the fact that Federer will be okay with it. He's a different type of character. I I can't imagine even without that 84 French Open final McEnroe being that type Mm. of character that doesn't have a match that keeps him up at night. But but it's impressive how he didn't let it affect his tennis for the rest of that season. Yeah, Yeah, sure is. And and that's another difference with Federer because, you know, Federer mentioned after that Milman match, the demons, he... Every time Federer plays, he has those 
the demons lurking from matches that he's lost. But but McEnroe seemed to park this match for the season, and yet it's haunted him for the rest of his life after he's finished playing, as he's written about and as we talked about. Mm. Thankfully, I'm really pleased that he ended up becoming a commentator and developing another <laughs> side to him to kind of have this outlet to show the world um, other aspects of his character because we've always found him great to deal with on the whole. And and watching that match, yeah, it's it's we were pulling for him really um, to, to 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 get over the line, and and obviously uh, it wasn't to be, but it was an absolute treat to relive for us, and I hope you've enjoyed listening about it as well. So, two down. We've got another one coming up tomorrow here on the Tennis Podcast, and it will feature 1985 at Roland Garros when Chris Evert faced Martina Navratilova in the third successive, well, in the second of three consecutive uh, finals that those two players would play against each other in surely the greatest rivalry the sport has ever known. Um, Catherine's got an exclusive interview with Chrissy that we're going to be playing some of it for you uh, in tomorrow's show we're going to also have chris evert week just after we've finished uh, the french open uh, relived series of podcasts and we're going to go really deep into her history as a player and what she meant to the sport and we'll play the full interview then but i tell you what you're going to listen to tomorrow is a treat Catherine, matt that was a lot of fun um we'll go and uh, and rest up before tomorrow's show hope you've enjoyed it and we'll be back with you tomorrow 